If you could sum up the book of Revelation's teaching in just one word, what word would you choose? Judgment? Violence? Penale? What about the word blessing? Just ahead, it's a look at 40 days through Revelation. Plus, we'll unpack all the news stories from the Middle East and answer your Bible questions. Join us now for The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger, always glad to sit down with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Charlie has led more than 100 tours to Israel. He's also traveled to Jordan, Turkey, Iraq, Greece, and other great places to bring additional perspectives. He brings enormous breadth to every discussion we have here on The Land of the Book. Welcome, Charlie. John, great. Thank you. It's good being back with you again. I always enjoy our time together. Well, Israel has been on our hearts for these past weeks. Uh, Many of us have been struggling with questions of what to think and feel. And in the midst of all this, God's heart for the Jewish people remains unchanged. He is faithful to his chosen people. And that's right. And that's why as this year is drawing to a close, our friends at Life in Messiah would like to help you better connect with this crucial aspect of God's character. They're offering their new book, Sharing God's Heart, to Land in the Book listeners. This 30-day guided reflection will help connect you with God's heart for His precious people. The articles, written by Life and Messiah staff, provide insight into Jewish life and culture. They can help you prepare to share with your friends the peace of Messiah they so desperately need. If you'd like one of these insightful books for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your copy. That's lifeinmessiah.org. Well, hope you've been enjoying your Thanksgiving weekend. We do have so much to be thankful for, right? But we have to turn our focus now toward the conflict with Hamas. It continues. Israel, of course, is already beginning to focus on lessons that need to be learned to avoid future attacks. Charlie, what military changes might we see coming out of this conflict? Well, let me start with the positive. Once Israel got engaged in the battle, their superior forces overwhelmed Hamas, and their plan for what they called integrated warfare worked even better than they had hoped it would. Hamas was convinced that embedding itself in civilian population centers with deep tunnels under homes and hospitals would negate Israel's air power. They also believed that the hand-to-hand combat in the crowded streets and alleyways would give them the advantage. They wanted to lure Israel in and then cause as many casualties as possible. But Israel's new plan for integrated warfare, which was untested up till now, showed how the coordinated use of troops, tanks, air power, and real-time intelligence enabled them to strike ambush points and underground tunnels with minimal casualties. Some preliminary reports had said they could have up to a thousand casualties. And as we're recording, it's, it's actually less, far less than a hundred right now. Now, Israel did discover flaws in their defensive strategy. The biggest flaw was the massive intelligence failure at the very beginning. They bought into reports that Hamas wasn't ready for a major conflict, and they ignored reports about their training exercises. Israel allowed itself to be understaffed along the border, in part because of the Jewish holiday. They had also been cutting back on military preparation. Several years ago, they reduced the length of time required for mandatory military service and reserve duty. And they were actually talking about the possibility of going to an all-volunteer army. It's likely they'll now reconsider retaining mandatory service and extending the duration of reserve duty. They were planning to reduce their fleet of attack helicopters, but now they're likely going to increase the number since they played such a vital role. Artificial intelligence helped Israel in the selection of targets in Gaza, and it's likely that they're now going to expand the use of AI in future conflicts. The Iron Dome and Aero systems both proved their worth, but 
It's interesting. Nothing has been reported on how the iron beam system functioned, though they said it was going to be put into use. Uh, that suggests it wasn't quite ready for prime time, so they're going to be pushing to bring it online as quickly as possible. And finally, Israel realized how long it took to mobilize and bring its forces to bear, especially in the first crucial hours. They'll now work to increase both the efficiency and effectiveness of any future response, especially from Hezbollah up in the north. Well, that's Dr. Charlie Dyer. This is The Land and the Book. We're taking a look kind of from a 30,000-foot level at this uh, Hamas attack, the conflict that's followed. Do we have any idea, Charlie, what changes Israel might undergo politically once this war is over? Yeah, once the war's in the rearview mirror, there's going to be a lot of finger-pointing and second-guessing. The state controller has already issued a critical report on the government's lack of preparedness and on its slow response. Israel was divided right down the middle politically before the start of the war, and while there's been a general sense of unity during the struggle, that unity is going to evaporate once the war is over. So politically, it's possible that Netanyahu will be forced to dissolve the government and hold new elections within a relatively short period of time. New elections would serve as a referendum on whether or not Netanyahu and his coalition were responsible for Israel being unprepared before the conflict and on how well they guided the nation through the conflict. Two political questions will need to be answered. First, will Netanyahu remain head of the Likud party? And then second, can Likud remain the dominant party in any new government? Now, it's at least possible that Netanyahu could choose to step aside to help the more centrist parties form a broad coalition without the parties from the extreme right or left. So, Don't be surprised if 2024 brings new elections to Israel and possibly a new prime minister. But as I've said many times before on this program, never rush to count Netanyahu out. Hmm. He's demonstrated time and time again he's a political survivor. Well, one key area impacted by the war, of course, has been tourism. Does Israel have any idea how soon tourism might bounce back? I listened to a discussion with some individuals in the tourism industry this past week. In the end, the head of the tour agency was asked his thoughts on the timing, and he said, we lost Hanukkah and Christmas, but we'll have Passover and Easter, meaning he expected tourism to bounce back by mid to late March. The response from the host was so typically Jewish, he said, from your lips to God's ears, (laughs) meaning we hope God agrees with your assessment. Uh, The one positive that came out of the discussion was Israel's resilience, both as individuals and as a nation. You know, they don't know when the war will be over. Uh, They don't know what Hezbollah is going to do, but they believe the country and tourism will bounce back relatively quickly once peace returns. The three crucial elements, though, right now are Hezbollah, transportation, and hotels. Hamas is being downgraded as a fighting force, but Hezbollah still remains to the north, and until the world knows what Hezbollah's intentions are, Israel will remain on war footing. Transportation is the second element. Tourism won't come back until the airlines start flying again, and right now, all the major airlines, with the exception of El Al, aren't flying there. Watch to see when the first airline announces that it's resuming flights, that will signal the start of a return to normalcy. And then the third element is hotels. Right now, many are being used to house those displaced by the war, both in the south and up in the north. Regular amenities were cut back, and a significant number of hotel staff were were laid off or, or called back to military service. Once those now in the hotels return home, the hotels will need to be prepped and the staff rehired. That might take a little while, but the larger chains will try to get their hotels up and running as rapidly as possible. 
60%, John, of the tourists who go to Israel do so for religious reasons. And there were 130,000 tourists in Israel the morning of October 7. Right now, that number is about 18,000, and most of those are Jewish individuals who've gone to Israel to support family or friends. That's an 86% drop in tourism. Hmm. Tourism is small, but it's a significant part of Israel's economy. So they'll push to get it up and running to bring back jobs and income. And hopefully this coming spring, we'll see robins returning up here in the north in the U.S. and tourists starting to flock back to Israel. I love it. Thank you, Charlie. Well, moving away from events surrounding the war to advances in archaeology, researchers opened up a new avenue of study for archaeologists by successfully extracting DNA out of a 2,900-year-old brick from ancient Assyria. How were they able to do this, and what did they discover, and how might it be used at other sites? Yeah, this is fascinating to me. Researchers took this mud brick from a palace in northern Iraq. It was built by Assyrian king Ashurnasirpal II. His name was stamped on the brick, so they know actually the time of his reign. He was from 879 to 869 BC, so they can date this brick to within a 10-year period. The researchers inserted a probe into the inner core of the brick and extracted a DNA sample from an area that well, hadn't been contaminated over, over the last 2,800 years. From that sample, they were able to identify 34 distinct groups of plants, including cabbage, heather, birch, laurel, and different cultivated grasses. They then compared those findings with modern-day botanical records from Iraq, as well as ancient Assyrian plant descriptions. They wanted to see what had changed. The results served as a biodiversity time capsule on the site and its surroundings and provide another avenue of insight into ancient Assyrian culture. Now, the researchers believe this could become a valuable tool to provide a better understanding of ancient civilizations and to evaluate the extent of biodiversity change over the centuries. And to think, John, all of that from the inner core of an ancient mud brick. Hmm. Who knew? Well, a fascinating program today, including a conversation coming up regarding 40 Days Through Revelation. Ron Rhodes shares how Jesus and hope and blessing are at the center of that book. So you'll love that conversation. Plus, we've got Bible questions and Charlie's answers and his devotional. Kind of worth sticking around for, I think. And it's also worth sharing with a friend. Let them know where they can listen to our podcast. It's right there at the website, thelandandthebook.org. We're back with more next. If you could sum up the book of Revelation's teaching in just one word, what would you choose? Judgment? Violence? Maybe finale? What about the word blessing? Well, that's the thought that captures Ron Rhodes. Hey, coming up, a look at 40 days through Revelation. Welcome to segment two here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. And just before we take a peek at future events, let's think about how we could impact the present by sharing the love of Christ with a Jewish friend. We are by nature curious. We want to know what's on the other side of this life. Can you ask your Jewish friend, though, what they think? And how do you steer that toward Jesus? Roy Schwartz is with Chosen People Ministries. How would you conduct that conversation, Roy? Well, I wouldn't go right away to Jesus. I would just go to Moses, and I'd say that Moses said there's two ways to find life, either following and obeying God or going our own way. And so when we follow God and come to him and trust in him, 
He says we will have life. God wants us to have life and to have it abundantly. That's why God gave the law. It pointed to the way, the truth, and the life. And so in the law, it portrays a way that leads to life. Now, as a Christian, I understand that there's no way I can keep the law. It points to the Messiah. But the idea of the Messiah is, again, all in the Jewish scriptures. And I would not go into the New Testament until they're ready, until they're ready to receive it. What we have to do is share with Jewish people that apart from the work of God, there is no salvation. Apart from, I mean, that that there is a way that leads to life. There is a way that brings life and that God is the source of life and that he's given us life. And that life points to him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And then once they acknowledge that God is the source of life, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, then you can eventually, if they're ready to acknowledge God as that, then they could possibly understand that that's why he sent the Messiah, to model the way of God in person. Roy Schwartz is with Chosen People Ministries. Thanks for those insights. Dr. Ron Rhodes is the president of Reasoning from the Scriptures Ministries, an apologetics organization located in Texas. He received his master's and doctoral degrees from Dallas Theological Seminary, graduating with honors. Ron has written more than 60 books and is a keynote speaker at conferences across the United States and Canada. And as time permits, he also teaches at a number of seminaries, including Dallas Theological Seminary and others. He's been a guest on many national and regional radio and television programs. He and his wife, Carrie, reside in Texas. Hey, welcome back to The Land and the Book, Ron. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you today. You know, Ron, I think a lot of listeners might be scratching their heads right now. They think about, you know, Revelation and and they're imaging uh, in their minds bowls of judgment, smoke, fire, war, death judgment. But you say that Revelation should also point us to blessing. Elaborate on that. Well, the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that promises a special blessing to those who read it and obey its message. Seven different times. Now, I don't know about you, but I want that blessing. I think that part of the blessing may relate to the fact that as you get to the last chapter, we win. This book was actually written towards people who were being persecuted, and it was intended to bring comfort to them in their persecution. Well, okay, you know, and I want that blessing too, Ron, and I appreciate your pointing that out. It's those of us who read and heed this uh, last book of our Bible. Why do so many of us, though, fail to connect a sense of blessing with the book of Revelation, Ron? Well, it is true that there's a lot of judgment in the book, But you have to understand that in context. That judgment is not for Christians. That judgment is for unbelievers, people who reject Jesus. And the thing of it is, when you read the end of the book, we end up in the New Jerusalem, which is in heaven. Uh, The way I like to tell it to people is, we will have a resurrected body and live on a resurrected earth in a brand new city called the New Jerusalem. Now, that's good news. Uh, That's part of the blessing that's promised in the book of Revelation. And so the point that I would make is this. No matter what suffering you have in the present day, read the book of Revelation, because it can bring the same comfort to you that it brought to the first century Christians 
who were being persecuted. That's great. Such an encouragement, Ron. Ron Rhodes has written more than 60 books and is a keynote speaker at conferences throughout the country, also teaches at seminaries and so on. Ron, you've written the book 40 Days Through Revelation. What's different about this one from the many others out there on end times events? Well, first of all, this is really easy to go through. My book takes the cookies and puts them on the bottom shelf, so to speak. I do that because I want people to understand the message. And so in each chapter, I not only explain what the text means, but I've got a number of extra sections that I add into the chapter. For example, there's a section on major themes. So I summarize the big ideas in each section of Scripture. I also provide life lessons. This is where you learn to apply what you have read in your daily life. And I tell you what, I can speak from experience in telling you that if you go through the book of Revelation to the very end, it will transform you. You cannot read through these life lessons and applications without your life being changed. So, Ron, walk us through some of the major themes of Revelation, and maybe a couple that some of us overlook. What are the major themes? Well, interestingly, the book of Revelation begins by talking about seven churches, and Jesus knows everything that is right in those churches and everything that is wrong. And so Jesus tells us to clean up our act on all the things that we've got wrong, but he commends us when we've done something right. There's all kinds of application in that text, and I would encourage all my listeners today to give it a shot. You're going to find all kinds of life-changing stuff there. And then beginning in chapter 4 of Revelation, it starts getting into prophecy. And in prophecy, it deals with the tribulation period in chapters 4 through 18. And then we find the second coming of Jesus in chapter 19. Then we find the millennial kingdom, which is the thousand-year rule of Christ. And that's in chapter 20. And then in chapters 21 and 22, we have the eternal state. And that means heaven for uh, Christians. And so it's a pretty logical organization. It goes from one prophecy to the next. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some symbols in there, but typically the symbols are defined within the text of Revelation. Well, Ron, you, you, you mentioned these symbols. I think many readers are afraid to jump into the book of Revelation, figuring all of that imagery is simply way over their heads, no way to really grasp it. How would you counsel people who feel like that, Ron? Well, I would say just to pay attention to the context of Revelation. For example, we do read about incense, and then the scriptures define the incense as the prayer of believers. So the symbol is defined. We read about many waters, and the waters refers to the nations. That's what Revelation tells us. So the point that I'm making is that every time you come across a symbol in Revelation, it is typically defined for us, and each symbol contains a literal truth. Now, I must tell you that some of those symbols are found in the Old Testament. You know, for example, Jesus is called the Lamb of God in the book of Revelation. Well, what does that mean? Well, there's a lot of other verses, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament, that shed light on that. And so, uh, just as uh, that's true of the Lamb of God, it's true of all the other prophetic topics. Dr. Ron Rhodes is the president of Reasoning from the Scriptures Ministries, an apologetics organization located in Texas. 
and he received his master's and doctoral degrees from the Dallas Theological Seminary, graduating with honors, I might add. Well, what do you see as some key life lessons, Ron, that we should carry away from Revelation? What are the themes that stir you in particular? Well, I think in particular we need to have an eternal perspective. Life can be hard. Life can throw us punches. And because life can be hard, we need to have a perspective that looks beyond the problems that we have to our ultimate destiny. You know, Scripture never says that we're going to have it easy once we become Christians. In fact, it's just the opposite, I think. The thing of it is, that eternal perspective gives us strength in the present. I would also say this. The book of Revelation emphasizes that God is our creator. And yet one of the things I think that is lacking among so many today is what I call creaturely respect. Hmm. You know, God made us, therefore we ought to listen to him, and we really ought to obey him. You know, that's one of the things that comes across loud and clear in the book of Revelation. And so I want to be one of those Christians who doesn't just talk the talk, but I want to walk the walk, to put it in the popular vernacular. It might surprise listeners to know that the book of Revelation, in different words, emphasizes that same truth. You know, it feels to me like there's an uptick in the interest level with regard to the book of Revelation these days. Anecdotally, I see, you know, more people looking at it, studying it, books coming out. Do you share that impression? And if so, how do you account for it? I think that there is increased interest in this topic, uh, no, no question about it. In fact, I've talked to a number of different authors on, on prophecy books, and all of their books are increased in terms of sales. And, you know, that just shows interest that people have, as well the volume of mail that is coming in with people having questions. Even when you look at the secular media, the secular media is talking about how many people believe that all of this that's taking place in our world today is an indication of the end times. And so I I think it's very, very relevant. And one of the things a lot of people don't recognize is that when the Bible was written, over one-fourth of it was prophetic when it was written. That's a lot of the Bible. So you don't want to be one of those people that ignores Bible prophecy. What would you say is the greatest warning for believers, not non-believers, but believers in the book of Revelation? What would that be, do you think? I think that today, one of the greatest warnings I would bring is the sin of partial obedience. I know all kinds of Christians who obey God in some areas, but not in all areas. And so it's time for us to examine our lives and to make any necessary changes right now. And one of the reasons I say that is we don't know when the rapture of the church will happen. I don't want to be in the middle of some bad sin when Christ shows up, if you know what I mean. Right. So it's a very important thing, and every Christian should take it to heart. If there's a second warning, what do you think that might be for believers? A second warning might be the fact that uh, too many Christians have not shown the kind of love toward Christ and toward others that they should. Uh, This is illustrated in the church at Ephesus. Today, it seems like so many churches focus mostly on doctrine, And doctrine is good. We need to have that. But where's that heartfelt passion for God? It's not just a matter of the head. It's also a matter of the heart. We need to have that heart love for God that shows itself in the way that we live. So when Christ was talking to the uh, Christians at Ephesus, 
He said, you guys used to love me, but now that's waned. Here we are 60 years later, and all that love has waned, even though you're doctrinally correct. So Jesus was telling them, yes, stay strong on the doctrine, but increase your love. And so I think that that's something that the modern church can learn as well. Yeah. Well, what about warnings for non-believers? I think of Revelation 20, 15, right off the bat, you know, whosoever's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It doesn't get any more sobering than that, Ron. Well, that's true. And a tempering truth would be the fact that even though the tribulation period is going to be horrible, you know, it's going to be the darkest period in human history, Nevertheless, God is going to send his witnesses to share the gospel. I'm talking about, for example, the 144,000 Jewish witnesses in Revelation 7. And then God's going to send two mighty prophets in Revelation 11. And they're going to bear witness to the truth. And they will make such an impact that there's going to be a great multitude of believers. And so the point is this. Even though there are many unbelievers today you still got the opportunity, even during the tribulation period, to turn your life over to Christ. And I just love that fact. In the darkest period of history, Christ's light will still shine. And that's a great place to land this conversation. We're talking today with Ron Rhodes, who's written 40 Days Through Revelation. There's a link to that book, a link to his website as well, when you visit us at thelandandthebook.org thelandandthebook.org. Ron, we'd love to have you come back sometime and talk about the end times in chronological order. Will you do that? I will do it. All right. We'll enjoy that as well. Right now, though, a visit with Charlie Dyer coming up. Your Bible questions, his answers here on The Land and the Book. always good to connect with you here at The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer. I think you're going to love what's up next. It's our Q&A segment, questions and answers. Not our questions, yours. Your questions as you peruse through Scripture and encounter things that kind of make you scratch your head. What do you do with those questions? We recommend you send us an email at thelandandthebook at moody.edu and let Charlie take a look. Well, Charlie, Israel has been on all of our minds these past months. Many of us have been struggling with questions of what to think and feel. And in the midst of all this, God's heart for the Jewish people remains unchanged. He is faithful to his chosen people. And that's why as this year is drawing to a close, our friends at Life and Messiah would like to help you better connect with this crucial aspect of God's character. They're offering their new book, Sharing God's Heart, to the Land and the Book listeners. This 30-day guided reflection will help connect you with God's heart for His precious people. The articles, written by Life and Messiah staff, provide insight into Jewish life and culture. They can help prepare you to share with your friends the peace of Messiah they so desperately need. If you would like one of these insightful books for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your copy. That's lifeinmessiah.org. All right, we'll start with our first question today from John. He says, as the name of your program indicates, the land and the book, you have a great love for the people of Israel. I'd like to know your view of covenant or reform theology. Do you believe that viewing the scripture in this way is detrimental to the support of God's chosen people? 
Okay, I, I got to start by saying I'm not a covenant theologian, and I'm not Reformed in the sense that I don't hold to all five of those traditional tulip points of Reformed theology, like limited atonement or unconditional election. But I do know individuals who identify themselves as covenant theologians and five-point Calvinists, but who nevertheless still support Israel and the Jewish people and who see a future for Israel. So let me answer in a slightly different way. I personally see the issue being how one approaches the prophetic portions of God's Word. When taken literally or at face value, as I do, it's clear that the Bible pictures a future earthly messianic kingdom for Israel. The covenant God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants is still in effect, and it will be fulfilled at the second coming of Christ. Those who hold to replacement theology believe those promises have been all transferred from Israel to the church and will be fulfilled in a spiritual rather than a literal sense. And practically, that's often resulted in a rise in anti-Semitism. The one passage in the New Testament that directly speaks to the relationship between Israel and the church is Romans 9 to 11. And there, Paul makes it clear that God's promises to Israel remain in force because, as he says in 11, 28 to 29, Israel is, quote, loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. In other words, Paul is saying that Israel has a future because God made specific unconditional promises to the patriarchs and to Israel, and God never reneges on his promises. So while I disagree theologically with those who hold the covenant and reform theology, I believe the main issue when it comes to support for Israel is whether or not someone holds to replacement theology. Those who believe the church has replaced Israel as the people of God and who see God's promises to Israel you know, now being fulfilled spiritually in the church— they're the ones less likely to support Israel or to view them as God's chosen people. Anne says, thank you for your program. And I should point out, you guys tend to talk rather quickly. Charlie, my wife, says that to me all the time. (laughs) And uh, she's, she's asking, you know, in light of that, you know, is there a book out there that might have more facts about the type of questions that people ask? Well, you know, John, I confess, I speak quickly. I I grew up in Northeastern PA and on the East Coast, and I've just never been able to break that habit. Uh, But now, answering the question, here are some books I found helpful uh, for people who want to know just how to answer Bible questions. Some are old, but you can find them online. Uh, The first is Alleged Discrepancies of the Bible by a fellow named John Haley, H-A-L-E-Y. It was published first back in 1874, but it's still a good source. The second book is Bible Questions Answered, and that was written by William Pettengill, and it actually first appeared in 1965. And the third book I found helpful is Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, and a revised edition of that was published in 2017. And all three of those, by the way, are available on Amazon. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host is Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. We are speaking just a bit slower in an attempt to make sure you get everything. Here's a question from Joan about baptism. Some people are saying it can only be done by complete immersion. She says, I was baptized by sprinkling when I was 18 months old. I don't remember it, but I know the Holy Spirit lives in me. God has blessed me over and over during my life. My pastor says God does the baptizing, so whichever way we do it is not better one way or the other. I can only speak from my experience. Your perspective. Well, and I give a little bit of historical background here. When I was born, my parents had me baptized in the church where my mom grew up. Uh, It was a church that practiced infant baptism. So I was baptized as a child. Later, as I grew up, I wrestled with, should I as a believer be baptized? And for several years, I resisted because of that infant baptism experience. And the verse that changed my mind, this is crazy. It's 1 Corinthians 1, verses 14 to 17. 
And there Paul writes, I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you. And he goes on, though, and mentions a few he had baptized and explains why. And he says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, here's why those verses helped me. My reluctance to be baptized was caused in part by my resistance to some who saw baptism as necessary for salvation. And I also struggled with people who saw baptism as something like an initiation ritual, you know, for joining the church. I resonated with Paul's words that Jesus hadn't sent him to baptize, but to preach the gospel. But then I also noticed that he did baptize some who came to faith. Anyway, that helped me understand baptism. It's not a requirement for salvation. It's a public way to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and to demonstrate a desire to follow him. And that's what finally got me baptized. Now, in terms of the mode of baptism, I'm less dogmatic here. I was baptized by immersion in a swimming pool. But I've been in services where people are baptized by sprinkling water on their heads or pouring water over their heads, and sometimes it's done for health reasons. Other times it's the preference of the church or the pastor. And to me, the decision to identify publicly with Jesus is more important than the specific mode. So what I'd encourage you to do, study for yourself what the Bible says about baptism, and then do what you personally believe is most honoring to the Lord. George writes, there are many verses in the Bible that tell us to seek after God, such as Jeremiah 29, verse 13, also that we're to draw near to him, as in James 4, verse 8, and he will reveal himself to us. However, we're told in Romans 3, verse 11, that no one seeks after God and that only God can draw us to himself, John 6, So how do we bring all these verses into agreement? Uh, I got to answer two ways. First, Romans 3 is where Paul's quoting several Old Testament passages to prove his assertion he made in 3 9 that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. So it's a summary of an argument he's been constructing since chapter 1. I then see his conclusion in, in uh, verses 20 to 24 of chapter 3. There's nothing we can do to be declared righteous. However, there's a righteousness that comes to us from God through faith. Now, second, I see the other verses calling on us to draw near to God as being addressed to those who've been justified by faith and who now possess the indwelling Holy Spirit. In fact, a good verse for me is Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Uh, That passage uh, is where Paul calls on believers in Philippi to, quote, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That is, he's calling on them to actively work to make their position in Christ a reality. Uh, That's very similar to that draw near to God and he'll draw near to you verse you mentioned elsewhere. But uh, in the very next verse, Paul tells how this can happen. He says, for it's God who's at work in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. So Paul can call on us to do our part because God is already at work inside his followers, providing both the desire and the enablement to accomplish his will. It's the land and the book from Moody Radio. Our host, Charlie Dyer, is answering questions that have come to us via email. Christine takes us to John 2, verse 4, where Jesus is speaking to his mother at the wedding of Cana. And she doesn't understand the phrase where Jesus says, what to me and to you, O woman. Jesus' mother obviously knew that Jesus is going to help because she told the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. So can you help me understand the passage? Yeah, and there's several items in that short little account that need explanation. The first is when Jesus addressed his mother as woman. That seems harsh to us, almost rude. But it's not an insult. It was a polite, though not necessarily intimate, way of addressing a woman. You know, Jesus used that to talk to the woman at the well later in John 4. He used it again to connect his mother with the apostle John while he's on the cross in John 19. And in John 20, the angels at the empty tomb used it to address Mary Magdalene. And in that same chapter, so did Jesus. 
So I believe the word interjects just a bit of separation between Jesus and his mother. Instead of being the child who is obedient to his parents, like in Luke 2.51, Jesus is now the son who's submitting to the will of his heavenly father. So the literal phrase part, what to me and to you, was a relatively common phrase used to indicate a change in relationship. It's found in Mark chapter 1 where the demons cried out, what do you want with us? Uh, It's also found in in the Septuagint translation of Judges chapter 11. Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and asked, what's between you and me that you've come to fight me? And it's found a number of other places as well. To put it all together, Jesus is addressing his mother in a polite but less intimate way to let her know there's a change in their relationship. She's asking him to do something dramatic, even miraculous, to save the honor of the wedding couple. But Jesus is saying, wait, my hour hasn't yet come. Now, Mary accepts what Jesus said, turns to the servants, and simply says, whatever he says, do it. Uh, Jesus graciously answers his mother's request, but the miracle was only known to a select audience. Uh, It wasn't time yet for his miracles to show his power. Great insights. Thank you, Charlie. And we're looking forward to your devotional. It's next here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. It's our fourth and final segment. I'm John Geiger, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, about to deliver a devotional that I think you'll find encouraging from Proverbs chapter 26. It's titled Answering a Fool. And uh, I think to myself, you know, I'm sure there are times when I've been foolish, but how should we answer a fool? Is there a right way, a wrong way? And what are we to do with the apparent contradictions that we find in Proverbs chapter 26? That's all coming up here on The Land and the Book. First, though, A thought from somebody who's traveled to the Holy Land and brings back this Holy Land experience for you and me. My name is Beth. I'm from Indianapolis, and this trip has just been incredible. It's hard to say what my favorite spot was, but if I had to pick one right now, I would say um, seeing Peter's house in Capernaum right on uh, the Sea of Galilee and just to know that Jesus did his ministry in that small area of three towns that are very close to each other was a real insight that he really didn't go far for the main part of his ministry those three years. And um, just to be in the spot where he stayed and uh, did a major part of his ministry was incredible. I'll never read the Bible the same again. To know where each of these places are just adds so much understanding, and I've just learned how important it is to pay attention to the details of the Bible, that our God is a God of detail, and we need to know those details. So it was a real challenge for me to strive to do that more. Well, Charlie, sometimes we get confused when we read scriptures that apparently contradict each other. Help us unpack Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Oh, thanks, John. Yeah, this is two of my favorite verses here, but i got to start this way. Over the past year, I posted a total of 29 short videos on my trips to Israel on our Land in the Book Facebook page. You know, at the end of most touring days, I'd, I'd upload the video clips to my iPad and then produce a summary of the day set to music. It's actually a very therapeutic way for me to end each day. Most of the time, those videos are viewed by a few dozen to a few hundred friends and followers of The Land and the Book. But for some reason, I can't even begin to explain, a few of the videos went viral, with tens of thousands of people viewing them. 
One reached over 173,000 people with 13,000 directly engaging with the video in some way. Now that sounds like a totally unexpected blessing, but it actually turned out to be both a blessing and a curse. Now I say that because some who came across the videos and then shared them with their circle of friends and followers are definitely not friends of Israel or the Jewish people or evangelical Christians or the radio program. In fact, some posts were downright hateful. And by hateful, I mean using anti-Semitic slurs, swearing, posting inappropriate pictures, and providing links to other sites that are the opposite of what The Land and the Book and Moody Bible Institute believe and teach. I had to go through those posts dozens of times to hide and block individuals trying to hijack the site to promote their own anti-biblical ideology. Even now, I still find myself going back every so often and discovering still more posts popping up like weeds needing to be pulled out. During all this, I ask myself what the proper response ought to be when confronted with individuals who respond in such hateful ways. And as always, the Bible provided the answer. So today we'll be exploring some of King Solomon's wise words on how best to answer a fool. Now I need to start by defining what the Bible means by a fool. In the Bible, a fool isn't someone who merely acts silly. A fool is the opposite of someone who is wise. For example, Proverbs 10.23 says, A fool finds pleasure in wickedness, but a wise man delights in understanding. Or Proverbs 12.15, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Perhaps Psalm 14.1 characterizes the fool best. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. So how do you respond to someone who is always convinced he or she has all the answers, who refuses to listen to the advice or counsel of someone else, and who has no time for God in his or her life? Well, wise King Solomon offered two courses of action that, at first, actually seem contradictory. Here's his answer in Proverbs 26, verse 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself. And then here's response number two in the very next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. So, are you supposed to respond in a similar way to the words of a fool, or is the best response no response at all? Well, let's unpack Solomon's words to see how they apply, and we'll start with verse 4. There are times when someone's crude, tasteless, vile remarks just punch all the wrong buttons in our lives, and we get angry. Physiologically, our blood pressure and our heart rate rise, and our adrenal glands release adrenaline, prompting the fight-or-flight mechanism. We get agitated, and we begin to process things less logically and more emotionally. A very real temptation right then is to lash out at the individual, either verbally or physically, to let them know our extreme displeasure. And that's why Solomon's words in verse 4 are so important. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself. His point is that those who are wise must learn to control their emotions so that they're not brought down to the level of the fool. Many times the questions and statements of a fool simply need to be ignored. There's a quotation, rightly or wrongly attributed to Mark Twain, that represents the truth of Proverbs 26.4 this way. Never argue with a fool. They'll drag you down to their level and then beat you with experience. A more modern and perhaps more graphic example was shared by a former head of the Federal Mediation and Conciliation Service when he was being heckled by someone in the crowd asking nasty and irrelevant questions. The speaker finally held up his own hand and said, My friend, I'm not going to answer any more of your questions. I hope you won't take this personally, but I'm reminded of something my old uncle told me long ago back on the farm. He said, What's the sense of wrestling with a pig? You both get all over muddy, and the pig likes it. 
So wise response number one is simply to ignore foolish comments and questions, to remain above the fray. And that's what I actually chose to do for the vile and hateful comments posted on our Facebook page. In my sinful self, I wanted to fire back with my own verbal missiles. But then I remembered Solomon's wise words. So instead, I simply blocked the individual from our page, removed the post, and the problem was solved. And I didn't lose my cool or waste my time. But what about those times when someone is promoting false teaching that could very well impact others? When someone fails to respond, it's possible the fool will believe he or she must be right. What are we to do in those situations? And that's when Solomon reaches into his bag of wisdom and pulls out verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Now, I don't believe Solomon is telling us to climb down to the level of the fool by launching a personal attack or a vicious answer. The word translated according to in that verse is actually a single Hebrew letter that denotes a comparison. Solomon isn't saying we need to respond to the fool by acting in the same foolish way ourselves. Rather, he's saying that in those times, we need to respond in a way that shows the foolishness of the comments made by the fool. The New American Standard Bible offers a good rendering of the phrase. We're to answer a fool as his folly deserves. Unless we miss the point, Solomon explains why that's sometimes necessary, that he may not be wise in his own eyes. There are times when the fool and those who might be under his influence need to be shown that their arguments are flawed and their reasoning is faulty. Foolish comments can be ignored, but there are times when false ideas need to be corrected. So when should we apply verse 4 and when should we apply verse 5? That comes from mastering God's wisdom. I would suggest that one way to discern is to see what our motives are for responding or not responding. If I want to respond because I'm offended and angry, then perhaps that's when I need to focus on verse 4 and not let myself be drawn into a debate. But if I want to respond because I see others being influenced by the fool, that's when I need to pray for wisdom and see if the response of verse 5 is appropriate. So how have I applied this to my life? For 99% of the vile, filthy, false comments that were posted to our Facebook page, I simply blocked the one doing the posting. No answer would change their foolish opinion, and it could certainly take up a great deal of my time wrestling in the mud. Now, I take the opposite approach with those who write to the program with questions. I answer virtually everyone who writes, even when I sense an antagonistic spirit. And thankfully, there aren't too many of those. But I do want to provide them with a biblical answer. And I share those questions and answers on the program because I want our listeners to be aware of the issues so that they aren't led astray. So, should you answer a fool or not? Solomon would say, it depends. Study Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5, and then ask God to give you a heart of wisdom in knowing how best to respond. Boy, that is so practical, Charlie. Thank you for those insights. Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Maybe you want to check those out for yourself. Our podcast is available for you to share with a friend or enjoy yourself. You'll find it at thelandandthebook.org. I'm John Geiger for Charlie Dyer, thanking you for listening to The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.